kind of the end all of chapter 15 when he says, these things have I spoken. And we looked at what he spoke to us and the result of what he spoke, spoke to us at the end of chapter 15 would be for our benefit that we should not be offended, that we should not be offended. And so it's important that we recognize that and that we see that Christ doesn't want us to be displeased uh, in this Christian life, but not because of how He wants us to live to bring Him glory, but because of the guarantee of persecution. And we saw that at the end of chapter 15, uh, down about verse verse 18 down to the end of the chapter. So we're going to reread verse 1, go down to about verse 11, and then we'll go jump back into our verse-by-verse study. Let's stand, if you don't mind, in honor of the reading of the Word of God, John chapter 16, starting in verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. These things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me whither goest thou. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. And when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on Me. Of righteousness, because I go to My Father and ye see Me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning. We're grateful for the opportunity we have to study Your Word together and to sing Your praises. Lord, we, we thank You for uh, this, this part, part of Scripture in our study as we prepare to see the sacrifice that Your Son uh, gave so that we might have eternal life. And I pray that You would speak to our hearts and minds this morning, manifest Your Word to us, give us clarity of thought as we study, remove all distractions, help us not to preach opinion but to be faithful to the truth in Christ's name and for Christ's sake we pray all these things. Amen and amen. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of the Word of God. John, you may be seated. John 16 verse 1, when the biblical view of the Spirit that we'll see here in just a moment at the latter part of this is observed, one cannot help but recognize the the utter mischaracterization of the role of the Holy Spirit in this world. All you have to do is look at some of the more charismatic people groups who claim to follow the teachings of the Word of God to understand that they have mischaracterized the Holy Spirit and His work as something different than what Scripture teaches. And so a brief overview of these next few verses is going to help us to understand why the Christian needs the Spirit in our daily efforts to be a witness. Now we already know the Spirit's a comforter, amen? That's his, his title, that's his role, that's what he does. He comforts, but he comforts the believers. The Holy Spirit is not a comfort to this world, and we'll see that as we work through these passages here. Remember, Christ is with His disciples in the final hours, chapter uh, uh, 13 there, 
we see to chapter 17 uh, deals with the 24-hour period before Jesus' arrest, His death, and His burial, and His resurrection. All these chapters deal with one 24-hour day. Amen? And remember, that's where we're at. They've had the Passover together. They've observed the Lord's table. Jesus taught them about the New Testament, which is His blood. Amen? Although they didn't understand it at the time. And now He is on His way to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray And the final chapter takes place just prior to Jesus' prayer for His followers here, chapter 16. I want us to notice three things this morning, very briefly, a breakdown, if you will, of these verses. In verses 1 through through 3, we see a promised persecution. A promised persecution. Look at verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth whose service? God's. Briefly, we're being reminded that to serve Christ, all that serve Christ will suffer persecution. We will, amen? Now, when we think of persecution, what do we think of? Beheadings, amen? Being locked up for our faith. That's not what all persecution is. Now I'm not saying just because someone mocks you because you're a Christian that that's persecution. That's an extreme. uh, That's an extreme mentality. They laughed at me because I'm a Christian. That's not persecution. But we live in a day and age where we are supposedly in a free country, and yet a business, a private business, refuses to do service for a certain type of people group, and then all of a sudden their entire life savings and their business is depleted because it goes against their religious beliefs. That's persecution. Amen. And we live in that day. We live in that day. It will cost you something to live for Christ. Christians that have the mentality that living for Christ is all just peaches and cream all the time, amen. It's roses, it's running through the lilacs, and we're just la-di-da, our head in the clouds. That's not real Christianity, amen. That's not biblical Christianity. You see, it is the world that wishes to be removed from reality. It is the lies of the Antichrist and of Satan that wishes for all of us to live in a Disney land. Amen? Where everything is just a musical and just goes, everything always works out in the end. Now, it will all work out in the end, but only for God and His people. Amen. That's, that's how this book ends. Amen? So, persecution will come. And in verse number 2, I find it strange as we talked last week, if you look back at chapter 15 and verse number 21, all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not Him that sent me. In Sunday school this morning, we've started a lesson on injustice. We've been studying a, seri- we've been studying a series in our teen Sunday school class on victory. How to have victory. Amen? Here's the thing. You already have victory as a Christian. You already have it. Now whether you tap into that victory or not is up to you as an individual in your relationship with Christ Jesus. You've already been given the victory. Amen? Because Christ is already victorious. But we need to learn how to not allow the pressures of this life to cause us to be down about the things that happen and cause us to live defeated Christian lives. We've been given victory. We're not, we're not defeated. We're the ones at the end that win because of Christ in us. Amen? 
But I want us to understand in, in, that, in the setting that we talked about this morning, we learned about injustice. How to have victory over injustice. Unfair life. Amen? And, and parents, I, I, I reminded your teenagers of something that I'm sure they've heard before. Life is not what? Fair. And we call that injustice. We looked at the 11th to 16th, 11th to 13th, no, 11th to 16th century as the beginning, and we talked about how the Roman Catholics persecuted and murdered millions of Muslims because they would not convert to Christianity. Now, do Muslims believe like we believe? Absolutely not. They don't even serve the same God. We can prove that with Scripture. Amen? That's very clear in the Word of God. But does that mean that they deserve to die at our hand because they don't believe like we believe? No, that's an injustice. But the same thing happened to Bible believers during those same centuries. They were murdered. Why? Because the Catholics didn't want people to read the Bible during those days. That's why they were called the Dark Ages. Amen? Because they were spiritually dark. And listen, this is an opinion. This is just facts of history. Amen? This is just how it worked out. And it's very unfortunate But if we stick our head in the sand when it comes to history, then we're doomed to repeat it. Amen? And so we must recognize that there will be persecution, and sometimes those that bring persecution do so in the name of God, thinking that they serve the God of heaven. There are two things here in verse number 2 that we see in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 16. Brief examples of the persecution the believer in Christ will face. First, we see that they're ostracized. They shall put you out of the synagogues. They're going to remove them from the religious daily practice of being able to go to the synagogue to study God's Word. They're ostracized for their belief. And then we see that they're murdered. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you. So they're removed from the world's perceived view of what religion and church should be. And then their life, physical life, is taken from them. And that's the promise of the Christian life. Now that's not very encouraging, is it? Well, we're not done yet. Amen? We'll get there. We'll get there. Look at verse 3. These things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. If you'll recall the reason for their vehement hatred of Jesus is because they do not serve God the Father. Remember John chapter 8 and verse 44? Look at it with me. Just quick. Let's just flip over. We're in the Gospel of John. Look at chapter 8 and verse 44. John 8, 44. The Bible reads, Ye are of your father, who? The devil. They serve the wrong father. They're not serving God the Father, the one Lord. Hear, O Israel, our Lord is one Lord. They serve their father, the devil. That's why they hate Jesus. Because Jesus said that He and His Father are one, and He put Himself on the plane, the same plane as God. And He introduced Himself as the Christ. He is God in the flesh. And the Jews hated Him for it. Because he didn't fit the mold of what they thought the Messiah should be. There's possibly no greater example in all of Scripture of this type of persecution than the Apostle Paul. 
Look at Acts chapter 26 with me, if you will. Turn with me there. We're going to look here. Acts chapter 26, down around verse number 5. We'll start. Acts chapter 26. Amen. I think my microphone's a little hot, Brother Royce, if you don't mind. A little. Amen. I was hearing something. I thought it was just me because my wife reminds me how crazy I am all the time. And I'm just used to hearing voices and sounds. And then it sounded like my heart was beating out of my chest. And I realized it's, it's this stethoscope we've stretched, strapped to me to record what I say. Amen. You can hear everything. Go on the website. You can hear me preach. and You can hear my heart race at the same time. Amen. All right. Acts chat. You doing all right? Say amen. 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 All right. Everybody's heart's beating. I just, you can just tell mine is. All right. Acts 26, verse 5. Which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Let's stop. I, I should have given a little introduction. This is the famous passage where Paul stands before King Agrippa. And he gives his testimony. And he, and he lays out the gospel of Jesus Christ and how, how God changed Paul, Saul's life forever. Amen? And then some of the saddest words in all of Scripture by King Agrippa. Almost thou hast persuaded me to be a Christian. But look at the beginning of his testimony. Paul willingly admits, verse number 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope sake King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. Verse number 8, I believe is one of the greatest apologetic defenses of our beliefs. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Just as a side note, just this, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I've, I would highlight that verse, I would circle it, I would underline it. Because that is a question that I would be willing to ask just about any unbeliever that will not place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, I just can't believe in the resurrection. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Is He not God? Does He not have all power? You believe in a God, right? You believe that God exists. Is it, is it that incredible that He is willing and able to use the power that He has to resurrect the dead, especially His only begotten Son? What a wonderful defense. Verse 9. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary, notice, to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Notice he doesn't say Jesus Christ, because Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It means anointed one, Messiah. So, from Paul's point of view, prior to conversion, he wasn't doing things contrary to God, because he didn't believe Jesus was God. He was doing things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth, the man. Verse 10, which thing I did in Jerusalem, which thing also I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. So he punished them. Verse 11, and I punished them oft in every synagogue. What else did he do? Compelled them to blaspheme. That's where, that's where the unbeliever says, 
you can reject Christ and you'll live. He compelled them to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. Compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them, even unto strange cities. So Paul, in giving his testimony of salvation to King Agrippa, confessed that prior to his conversion, he punished, compelled to blaspheme, and persecuted. But then notice in verse 15, jump down to verse 15, and I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Now look back at our text, chapter 16 of John and verse 3. Notice the connection. These things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. Saul didn't know who it was. The, the, the light from heaven, verse 4, back in Acts, you stay in John, Acts 26, I'm back over there, verse 14, when, they, when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me. Verse 13 talks about the light that shone down the, as the brightness of the sun shining around him. And Paul had no idea who it was. Why? Because John 16 and verse 3. These things they do unto you because they know not the Father nor me. All of that to say that when we look at persecution, this promised persecution, this is what we tend to do. And, and the reason we tend to look at it this way is because we're, we're Christianized Westerners. We'll put it that way. Amen. We get mad and defensive when they attack us. That's what we do. But when I read this verse in verse 3, I don't look at it and think, ignorant fools that don't know God. I look at it and think, oh my, how they need the truth. Because they think they're doing the service of God. And they don't know Him. And He's revealed Himself to mankind. And He's revealed Himself to us through Jesus Christ. And these people who are persecuting us, instead of getting mad at the promised persecution, we should be empathetic because but for the grace of God, that would be you and I. We should recognize their need to understand who Jesus is. So we see, number one, the promised persecution. Then look at verse number four. These things have I told you, that when the time shall come, when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. Not only do we see a promised persecution, but number two, if you're taking notes, verses four through seven teach us of a constant contentment. A constant contentment. Constant meaning continuous. Contentment meaning comfort or satisfaction. Notice verse number 5. But now I go my way to Him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whether goest thou? And so, yeah, they did. That's what started this whole thing. Uh, back in verse 37 of chapter 13, Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Verse 36, Lord, whither goest thou? So they did ask, yes, but he's not talking about then. That's what started this conversation. Amen? These final words. Peter's question, whether goest thou? That's why he begins it in chapter 14 and verse 1 with, Let not your heart be troubled. Why? Because he knew what he had to say was troubling. He knew what he had to say 
was not encouraging to the point to where it was going to cause the disciples to just live perfect Christian lives if He had just said it and left it there. He knew. Why? Because the Christian life and its very essence is difficult because we're flesh. But now I go my way to Him that sent me. Jesus is going. And now, no one's asking whither goest thou. Verse 6, But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. They felt defeated. They felt defeated. Why? Because Jesus basically just told him, He's going to die, and so are they, for His name. He's going to die, and then He's going to leave them here on this earth, and they are going to suffer, and they are going to die because of the teachings of Jesus Christ also. And Jesus knows their heart. Amen? Sorrow hath filled your heart. But verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Why? It is expedient for you that I go away. This word expedient by definition... Uh, uh, even when the truth wasn't popular or uplifting, Jesus says in verse number 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Friend, the truth of Scripture is not always popular. Remember what we said last week, if the world loves your Jesus, you've made Him something that He's not. How many of you know who Jordan Peterson is? Anybody know who that is? I know I've mentioned him a couple times. Nobody knows who he is, really? Wow, okay. That makes me feel really smart. All right, Amen. He's a clinical psychologist in Canada. And back about 2016, they tried to pass a law in Canada where uh, if you, it would be against the law to say he or she without asking someone their preferred pronoun. Y'all remember that? That law that they were passing, the CB16, something or another. And he was a clinical psychologist, tenured professor in one of the universities, and he was vehemently against it. Because he didn't wreck it. It wasn't so much that he hates people that think that way. He had the mentality that that is a removal of a freedom of speech because you're restricting one's speech. And so he became popular from that. And I watched a documentary uh, about him this week, and I remember watching how he transitioned from this professor who had, you know, a small voice because, or had a voice that would reach just a couple of, you know, 20, 30 people. And he started posting his lectures on YouTube, and then he grew to 3 million subscribers, and now he's speaking in front of hundreds and hundreds of people and all the applause. And, you know, at, at first, as I saw him walking out onto that platform, getting ready to talk about how, you know, it's important to clean your room, because that's literally one of the things he teaches and young men come up to him in their 20s and 30s and say that, that that changed their life. And I'm sitting here thinking, my mom told me that when I was four, amen? Pretty sure she told me that before that, but that's what changed your life? And I remember thinking, man, wouldn't it be great if you could just kind of come out to an auditorium filled with people and preach the truth and they would cheer? And then I remembered the words of Christ. The world hates you, surely. It's because they've hated me first. This world does not love the truth of Scripture. And it's not always encouraging to us as believers when we first come across it. But then Jesus says, nevertheless. Yes, you're sorrowful. Yes, your heart is filled with sorrow. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Because in the end, it's the truth that we need. It is, verse 7, expedient for you that I go away. 
For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. Expedient means literally hastening, urging forward. Uh, Hence, tending to promote the, the object proposed. Fit or suitable for the purpose, proper under the circumstances. And the Bible, Jesus Christ teaches us that it was suitable for the purpose of promoting the Holy Spirit that He had to go away. It was expedient. It's imperative to hide God's Word in our heart. If you'll look back at verse 5, verse 4, you see that Jesus told you and He tells them that ye may remember that I told you them. These things about the persecution, have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember? It's imperative that God's Word is hidden in our hearts and that we remember God's Word so that we may live a pleasing life before Him. But we also need to remember that He has taught because it can help us even when the truth is not popular. To stand firm on the foundation of what He has spoken. To stand firm on the foundation of what He has taught. The disciples were sorrowful because of the impending persecution and the loneliness that they would endure. And up until this point, they had Christ with them to help them during times of trouble. Now He's telling them that He's he's physically leaving and that they're going to suffer for His name. But if we will focus on the truth of verse number 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. If we focus on the truth of verse number 7, instead of the circumstances of chapter 15, verses 18 through 23, and chapter 16, verses 1 through 6, we can fulfill the teaching of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If we will focus on the truth that Christ has taught instead of the circumstances of our Christian life, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Remember what's that word consolation mean? Comfort. Comfort. Remember, that's what a consolation prize is. It's a comfort prize because you're first loser. Amen? That's what a consolation prize is. All right? Verse number 6. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your what? Consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your what? Consolation and salvation. So verse 6 is teaching, Paul is saying that whether we be afflicted or whether we be comforted, as the, the leaders of the church, as Christians, whether we be afflicted or whether we be comforted, 
It is for your consolation and your salvation. And our hope, verse 7 of you, is steadfast. Our hope is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. All of that, and we're not going to take the time to unpack that. We're actually doing really well. I only have one more point, and we're going to get done with it this morning. Amen? You know, it's the first time in like a year. All right, but, but notice the, the point. The comfort that is given to us in tribulation comes from who? From God. Not from each other, from God. Now, how is it expressed? Through one another. Amen? Through the words of God. That's how it's expressed. That's how it's shown. But that comfort ultimately comes from God. That's why verse 4, "...who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble." By the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. If we focus on the truth of John 16 and verse 7, that yes, Jesus isn't physically here, but we have been given the comforter. If we'll focus on that truth instead of our circumstances, then we'll be able to be an encouragement and a comfort to those around us. A comfort whether through affliction, whether we suffer persecution, whether we struggle, whether we go day by day wanting to give up and give in, whether by affliction or whether by comfort, it is for the consolation and salvation of other people. Back to John. We see the promised persecution. We see the constant contentment, the satisfaction that we can have in this Christian life regardless of circumstance, regardless of status, regardless of situation because of the comfort that we are given by God through the Holy Spirit. But then notice verse number 8. And when He has come, who? The Comforter. He will reprove. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't look at reproof as very comforting. Amen? Reproof, well, we're going to study this out. Well, let me not get ahead of myself. Verse number 8. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. When considering the role of the Spirit, one often meditates on the work within the heart of the believer. That's what we like to do when we think of the Holy Spirit. Amen? The Comforter will come. We have a comfort from the Father. We, we have The Holy Spirit is our seal. Amen? Ephesians chapter 1. The, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. And we like to think about those things. But, but we rarely consider the role of the Spirit is not simply for the believer. The Spirit of God has a work to do in the world. And it is to reprove. Reprove is tied to convincing and blaming. It's most often tied to rebuke. Look at 2 Kings quickly. 2 Kings 19. Look down at verse number 3. Second Kings 19, verse number 3. 
And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. It may be the Lord thy God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, hath sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. So King Hezekiah sends forth, there's, there's battle coming, they, they, there's, there's been a rejection of God in the life of Israel and in the leadership, and they are seeing the Assyrians on the front, uh, uh, and they are in persecution, they are in captivity, and so they are sent, the king sends his men to Isaiah with the hopes, in verse 4, that it may be that the Lord thy God hear all of the words... So they're afraid that he's going to hear the words of the king of Assyria that are a reproach to the living God. And so he asks them to go to Isaiah to reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. To reprove. Now look back at verse 3. This is a day of trouble and of rebuke. Of trouble and of rebuke. So reproof is tied to rebuke. And oftentimes, well, let's look at one more verse. Look at Psalm 50. I want to make sure that we understand this. Psalm chapter 50. When we see this word reprove, depending on the context, it has the meaning of to blame or to convince. And that's the context. Or it's depended upon by context. Uh, Psalm 50, look down at verse number 8. Start at verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy fold, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Now let's, let's go back a little bit here in this chapter. I want us to see something. Our God, verse number 3. Psalm 50, verse number 3. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before Him. And it shall be very tempestuous round about Him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare His righteousness. For God is judge Himself. Selah. Now that word Selah there, a lot of people say it means stop and consider. That's not what it means. The book of Psalms is a poetic book. The Psalms were meant to be sung. Selah is the Hebrew rest note. When they were singing this song, this was the rest note. Amen? And any time we see this word Selah in Scripture, in the book of Psalms, it is a prophetic reference to God's people Israel at the end, or during the tribulation. 
So you can always tie. I mean, no, read now, now, understanding that, go back and reread verses 1 through 6. Amen? He cometh with fire, shall be very tempestuous. He called to the heavens from above and to the earth that He may judge His people. What's He doing when He comes back to rule and reign? He's judging and Israel will be saved in a day. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Those are those that have placed their faith and trust in the Word of God. And it was counted unto them as righteousness. In the Old Testament, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he obeyed God. In the New Testament, we believe God. And it's counted unto us as righteousness. Amen? We believe God. What does that mean? We believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God in the flesh. And so we are a part of His body. The heaven shall declare His righteousness, for God is judge Himself, Selah. So there's the prophetic reference. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. This is the judgment. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. It means I will not blame, place blame, or withhold blame Because of the sacrifices. Because what's going to happen during the tribulation? The the sacrificial system is going to start back. It's going to come back. We see that all throughout. It's going to happen again. And he says here, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices. This word reprove by definition means to blame, to censure, to charge with a fault to the face, to chide, to reprehend. That's what reprove means. Now, Go back to John 16. We're almost done. Let's bring it home. Amen. Let's bring it home. John 16, verse verse 8. And when He has come, who? That comfort. When He has come, is He going to bring comfort? He's going to bring peace? He's going to bring joy? No, no, no. He will reprove. He will rebuke. He will blame. He will convince. He's going to convince the world of some things. Of sin. Because they believe not on me. Of sin. John 3, 18. He that believeth not on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. He's going to convince man of his sin. That's what the work of the Spirit is in the world. To bring to light the sin within man. Verse 36 of John chapter 3, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. He will reprove the world of sin. Verse 9, Because they believe not on me. Verse 10, Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. You see, Jesus Christ is righteousness. He is. That's what 1 John 2.1 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's who He is. He is righteous. He is righteousness. And so He is gone from this world And now we have the Holy Spirit that is here to convince, to blame, to rebuke the world for righteousness and how they have treated Jesus Christ. 
And then number 11, of judgment. Because the prince of this world is judged. Psalm 9 verse 8 says, And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. So when the Bible teaches us that He will rebuke, yes, He's a comfort. Yes, we have uh, the seal until the day of redemption through the Holy Spirit. Yes, we have the earnest of our inheritance. But He is also the reprover of the world to rebuke. I want us to look at 2 Timothy real quick. 2 Timothy. Chapter 4. I want us to notice the charge given to young Timothy as a preacher. I remember one time I preached a message and it was here. It was several years ago. We had a visitor and after the service, this visitor kindly told me that they didn't appreciate the, the militaristic message that I preached, amen, that it was very, it, 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 you know, because you know me, I'm a, I'm a warmonger, amen, uh, I'm a fighter, you know me, that's, apparently that's just, that's how I came across, amen, how, how what I was, and the, and the only thing I could think of was that I, I read a verse and then kind of stopped on that verse a little bit about, and, because, and it was a reprove or a rebuke of how we as Christians live, amen, because what is it that, that's attractive about Christianity to most of the world or to most of Western civilization or what used to be attractive. It's the blessing part, right? That's what everybody wants. They want a blessing. I give you a blessing. First of all, you can't bless anybody. Amen? You can't. Only Christ can. Oh, I gave $20 to this homeless person. That was a blessing. No. Only God can bless. Amen? if we understood the actual meaning of the word blessing and what came with that. But I want us to notice, and, and, and I've always thought about this, because First Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy in verse number 2, preach the word. So he's addressing preaching. Be instant in season, out of season. And then this is what the pastor does when he preaches the word. Reprove. Rebuke, exhort. One out of three of those things is encouraging. Did you catch that? Reprove, rebuke, resort, reprove, blame, convince. Convince people of what? That Jesus is Lord. Convince them of their sin. Convince them of their need of their Savior. Rebuke. Rebuke what? Rebuke those that are living in sin. Those that are Christians and claim to be following Christ but live in open, adulterous sin. And then exhort. What is exhort? That's that lifting up. Amen? As Aaron, as Aaron and her lifted up Moses' arms in the wilderness. Amen? That's what they were doing. They were exhorting his arms. They were lifting them up. And that's what exhort means. One third of what I'm supposed to do behind this pulpit is to encourage. The rest of it is just simply to give you truth. And that truth is to rebuke and reprove. Amen? Amen. And sometimes, and hey, listen, that's hard for me. That's hard for me. Because I grew up, and, the, and, and you may not believe this now, but I want everyone to like me. 
Amen? I do. But sometimes we have to be true to this and not our emotions and our feelings. You see what we're saying? So look back at John 16 now. That's just a side note. That was for free. Amen? That was just for free this morning. We're, we're making great time. If we get out of here in the next five minutes, I'll probably be 20 minutes earlier than normal. No, I'm just kidding. Amen? I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. We're almost done. But the, the reproof... Amen. Brother Royce with his amen sign back there. The reproof of the Spirit. Notice what he's going to do. He's going to comfort the believer. But if we... So this this is what's interesting to me. Lord, let your Spirit have its work. That's what we'll pray sometimes, right? What is that work? To reprove. To reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Why? Because God hates sin. He is righteous and He will judge. In the face of persecution, we have a consolation, a comfort in the Spirit of God. So here's my question. Here, let's wrap it all up. Here's my question. Are we hindering the work of the Spirit of God in this world? To reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Are we hindering that work because we've preoccupied ourselves with ungodliness and carnality? We've preoccupied ourselves with ungodliness and carnality. And then we wonder why we don't see people getting saved all the time. We wonder why. Now listen, I'm not ignorant. It's harder It's harder these days. Amen? Why? Because people are so adamantly against God and against His people. What do we do in the face of persecution? We get our comfort in the work of the Holy Spirit to convince men of sin, to convince men of righteousness, to convince men of the pending judgment, and then let every man be persuaded in his own mind. Every head bowed, every eye closed.